I swear a lot, and I fucking apologize. But you didn't pay anything to get in here, so fuck you. You know, it's, it's... But before we jump into the most hedonistic of holidays for Oregon's first Christmas, I want to acknowledge one thing, and that is the Festival of Lights. Um, that's kind of fights. 
a.k.a. Gene Simmons, who was born in Haifa, uh, by the way. Um, tonight is indeed the first night of Hanukkah, and there are two Jews uh, in the audience. And to be, to be honest, I really didn't know that much about Hanukkah until I married a Jew broad, hot Jew broad at that. Um, and so now I'm kind of stuck with it. It's a bit like a social disease that's always with you. Um, so in that vein, so to speak, I've invited another one of my favorite Jews um, to come up. Not quite his favorite as well. I don't know. No, not his favorite as my wife. She's still my favorite Jew. But I invited a pretty good Jew um, to come up here and to, to lead us in, in a celebration of this Festival of Lights. Uh, we have a menorah here. And uh, we're, we're going to do this and we're going to have a brief transgression from Oregon's first Christmas and talk about the first Jews in Oregon. So uh, let's bring on up that Hebrew himself, um, uh, Mr. Dan Zalko. So, uh, uh, Dan, what we have here are uh, some of the some of the trappings of your pagan peoples. Uh, we have a menorah, and this this tall candle in the middle is the. Uh, Shamash. Becca, is that right? <laughs> She's a bad Jew. Don't ask her. Okay. So, so I, I'm going to come back here so, so that all the, the Christian folk can, can witness this. Uh, so continue. So Doug asked me to say the prayer of lighting of the menorah. Why the fuck do you have your iPhone out? Because I, I don't have it memorized. So I, this tradition is like 3,000 fucking years old. You yeah, don't I, have it memorized? I the middle of it. And I left my horns at home. I'm sorry. <laughs> Alright, so here we go. Baruch HaTad Anai Eloheinu El Chalam Hazayin Sibli Mamash Kadol Vitsivana Lahalik Ner Shalhanukah That's it. Oh, wait. <laughs> Since none of you guys know Hebrew, I did throw in a little, my penis is very big, <laughs> into that prayer, and no one noticed. I did. The most sacred of holidays. Dan Zalko, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Bringing to you the first night of Hanukkah. So let's talk about, come on, man. <laughs> Don't you go to hell for that? Jew hell? <laughs> there is no Jew hell. We all go to heaven. So there's, there's a little bit of debate as to who the first Jew in Oregon might have been. Uh, and I'm not making this shit up. This is the real deal here now. Um, there was a German engineer and soldier named Hermann Einberg who fought for Texas independence and then came to Oregon. He came to Astoria, they believe, in 1844, and he surveyed towns in western Oregon. The accepted Jews, first Jews in Oregon, are Jacob Goldsmith and Louis May, uh, who came to Portland in 1849. They operated a general merchandise store on Front Avenue. So now that we're done with all that PC-inclusive bullshit, can we get on to the Christian holiday? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. We are going to celebrate the birth of little baby Jesus now. Whoa. Did I turn that off? Bummer. Okay. So. Did I break it? I broke it. We got the other one? Awesome. I broke it. Wow. I broke. No, I didn't. Uh-huh. I'm kidding. I'm just 
gonna hold it. Okay. So we weren't supposed to have a drunken. We were supposed to have drunken Santa join us tonight, uh, but unfortunately. He decided to check into a rehabilitation facility in Phoenix, uh, get his shit together. It's a stressful time of year for Santa, and we hope that he's getting the help that he needs. He's been kind of going downhill. It was all fun and games until um, his drinking really started kind of affecting his work. <laughs> and uh, his bosses noticed, and it wasn't too long before he was just out of that. And it, it just kind of got fucking ugly. So, I, I mean, I feel bad because I kind of built it, and I, I was tweeting about it and put it on the fucking Facebook and let everybody know that Drunken Santa was going to be here. Um, you know, so I feel I feel bad about that. But it's, it's Andy and I, and again... We're hoping that he gets the help that he needs. So, Oregon's first Christmas. Let's talk about that. Inevitably, I'm uh, giving a little spoiler here, spoiler alert, it was Lewis and Clark that <laughs> celebrated the first Christmas in Oregon. Now again, I'm a, a, a historian, so I'm willing to be open to the debate. There were many ships that were traveling up the Pacific coast. Of course, they would stop in the mouth of the Columbia River to trade for furs from the Chinookan peoples. We're going to talk quite a bit about those uh, folks and the culture that they had uh, until they were decimated by malaria in the 1830s. And uh, we're going we're to chat about them. I'm willing to entertain the idea that a merchant vessel was in the mouth of the Columbia on December 25th and celebrated that holiday, likely Catholics. Uh, but for what we've got from the documentary record, we're going to go with Clark and Lewis in our discussion. Well, this discussion inevitably goes back to Napoleon. And this is kind of the classic uh, 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 give me hard Napoleon shot. This is him crossing the Alps. Apparently he would have actually been on a mule and I think he was a bit shorter. But that's kind of cool. I, I, I found the, the emo Napoleon picture here. I kind of like that one. You guys like that one? It's, it's, it's just kind of a great portrait of the man. I kind of dig it. Well, he owned uh, Louisiana. Uh, he, the French. And uh, there was a fellow by the name of Thomas Jefferson, who was our president, who didn't like the fact that New Orleans was a controlled port, controlled by the French. He wanted to get in on some of that commerce. So he proposed to French diplomats that the United States actually purchase New Orleans. Napoleon said, fuck, why don't you take it all? And you can see right here all of the Louisiana territory that Napoleon was talking about. Again, Jefferson wanted New Orleans. Napoleon said, take the whole fucking lot. So Jefferson said, okay, let's do this. And this came about for about $15 million. You can see Louisiana territory here, Oregon country up top, Spanish possessions there. So remember, the Spanish, the British, the Russians all had claims to this territory here. Now, before he had purchased Louisiana, Jefferson had a personal secretary that was living with him by the name of Meriwether Lewis. Meriwether Lewis was a military man, and Jefferson had proposed that he cross this area to find a essentially a water highway connecting coast to coast. Everything was transported in those days by the water. He wanted to make sure that he could find one continuous waterway across the nation. So he had asked 
uh, Lewis to lead this expedition. When this purchase, the Louisiana purchase went through, it kind of sped things up. It really needed to happen fast. But again, there were these other interests out here, so Jefferson didn't want to broadcast this expedition too much. So Jefferson dispatched these two guys. That's Bobblehead Jefferson there. And uh, that's Lewis and Clark right there with Lewis's Clark, uh, Lewis's dog who's named Seaman. Not as in, it was, not as in seminal emissions, but as in uh, men of the sea, which my father was in the Navy before and I understand they're all one and the same. One comes into port and spreads the others. So this was the dog's name, Seaman. Uh, you can call him Seaman, I'm referring to him as Seaman. So he said, I just bought all this, this land from the little French fucker Napoleon, and we really want you to go out there, take 33 guys with you, and check it out. The whole idea of the party, and here's, it, I found this on the internet, this nine-year-old drew this portrait of Lewis and Clark. I think it's fucking awesome, frankly. Um, you know, because you, you can find some others, like this one's just straight creepy. Uh, something has happened to their brain cases in, in this shot. So that, that one's creepy, I can't dig it. This one's just dreadfully boring. Uh, so we're just going to go back to, to the, to the nine-year-old Lewis and Clark. I'm serious, I dig the shit out of that. So he sent them out on this mission. They were to travel across this land and to document discoveries along the way. He wanted a couple of things. He wanted to make sure, well here's the route that they ended up going, 3,700 miles, one way. They did a little bit in a boat, they walked a lot of it too. He wanted scientific, commercial, and small d diplomatic mission. Again, he wanted to know about the plants. He wanted to know about the animals. They wanted to know about the minerals that were in this new land. But in addition to that, he wanted to make sure that they conveyed to the Native Americans that Jefferson was the new great father of the nation. So this was very much a diplomatic mission that these 33 men embarked upon. They were to seek the ocean, as we discussed, traveling those many, many miles. And at that time, it was completely unknown, for the most part, after St. Louis, where the men started out from. And uh, continue, <laughs> continue on their way. The first winter for Lewis and Clark, and hence the first Christmas, was spent at Fort Mandan, birthplace of Stan Falbring, uh, near Washburn, North Dakota. Uh, I can't think of a more hellacious place to spend a Christmas other than somewhere in way, way far northern Canada than North Dakota. Uh, the, the snow was absolutely horrific, uh, of course. It gets down to like negative 30 on a pretty consistent basis. But these guys, what they did every winter is they built this big fort that they would hole up in, and then they would meet with the Native Americans along the way who would trade with them. And at this point in Fort Mandan, they still had quite a bit of food left. They had quite a bit of trade goods that they were bringing around, files and beads and axes, axe heads at least, things like that that the natives at the time couldn't really get. 
So Fort Mandan was a pretty damn nice place for them to be. They had cannons. Christmas morning was greeted with three cannon volleys from the men who sang a happy little Christmas song. Uh, they ended up dancing through the evening. And of course, there was native ladies there for them to dance with as well. Uh, every member, let me stress that one more time, every member of the Lewis and Clark expedition was treated for syphilis. <laughs> the only ones that are ex uh, 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 the only ones that are excluded from the journals are the two captains, uh, Clark and Lewis, as supposedly not having caught syphilis. Before this great adventure of many years, uh, Meriwether Lewis sat down with a doctor for a few days and was taught how to be the company's physician. At that time, the best way to treat syphilis was through mercury. So Lewis was literally poisoning the men as they traveled across the country. The term mad as a hatter comes to mind as that was from the mercury. Construction of it right now uh, in North Dakota. If you should ever fucking find yourself outside of Washburn, North Dakota, I highly recommend that you visit it um, and uh, then purchase a pistol uh, nearby. I've fucking been there, dude. It's, it's, it's a horrific place, but a lovely, lovely little fort. Which uh, brings us to our uh, diorama contest. Anybody out there heard about the kick-ass Oregon history diorama contest? The two of you that have, all right, well, I'm going to fucking tell you about it right now. It goes something like this. 
ORHistory.com, our website, is having a diorama contest. What's the website? A diorama contest. <laughs> ORHistory.com. Thank you. So, basically what you do is you make a diorama depicting a kick-ass Oregon historical event. Take some pictures. If you're a lady, you can take some dirty pictures and send those in as well, as we worth extra points. Actually, men can do it too. But just know those crazy Craigslist cock shots. You seen those where it's just like a big dick tat? We don't. Well, okay, you can send those in too, but you won't get extra points. But um, anyways, send those pictures in to us of your diorama by January 15th. And then January 17th, we're going to be back down here at the Jack London. We are going to announce the winner at that Jack London show. If you bring your diorama to the Jack London bar on the 17th, you will be awarded an extra five points. Okay? So that's how it works. Bring your diorama here, you'll get an extra five points. But you can always email in the photos. So, there's, hold on, wait, Bob, wait, wait, hold on. There are four categories, there's a total of 40 points. Number one, kick assness, worth 10 points. Number two, Oregon historical significance. Number three, originality. And number four, ass kickiness. Okay. So if you got a kick-ass, ass kickiness diorama, you got 20 points right there. Bring it down here, that's another five. You've got 25 out of 40 already, okay? So bring the dioramas down, take some pictures, send them to us. The prize, you get a kick-ass Oregon History t-shirt, which we're selling here tonight, and some prizes donated by criminalcrafts.com. Go on to our website, orhistory.com. We have all the new. Yes, Terry. If anyone that makes a diorama wants to leave it here to forever grace the walls of the Jack London, we'd probably be really thrilled with it. Well, if you want to leave your diorama here, cool. they would be thrilled. That's <laughs> cool. Bob, you have a question? Question is, if you bring it here, do you have to send a photo first? Yeah, I think you should send a photo first. So we want to take a look at all of them. Yes? Will you throw out a blowjob? For you, no. For any, for you, yes, yes, yes. I, oh, that wasn't your question? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I take that back. Yes, question. Doug, what's a diorama? Uh, oh, good question. This, this is a diorama. A diorama is a three-dimensional depiction. So, for example, this is uh, Lewis and Clark and uh, the child molester uh, Charbonneau, who we'll be talking about soon, uh, standing in uh, Fort Van Dam. So, uh, yeah, that's a diorama. So, something like that. You can make it out of those little dudes. You can make it out of Lego guys. You can make pipe cleaners. Uh, you can cut out all kinds of just crafty, amazing things. So, yes. One more question. Yes. Does it have to be EPA requirements for hazmat? Absolutely not, but you get more originality points if it doesn't. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so here's some Fort Mandan dioramas, and here's another Fort Mandan diorama. That one's pretty fucking cool. That would win, I bet, but not in the Oregon history part. So, anyways, continue with that. So, Sakalawea is a very interesting woman. I tried to find the most Anglo pictures I could. What did you call her? Sacagawea. We remember her as Sacagawea. Many of us older folks. But the, the, the pronunciation that people are using these, these days is Sacagawea, okay? So this uh, 
young woman, actually a girl, was uh, Lemmy Shishon, and she was captured by the Hadatsa people in a raid. She was held as a slave until the charming child molester Toussaint Chabonneau came along, a Quebecan, a French trapper, who engaged in a game of chance with the evil Hadatsa Indians. And he won the young teenage girl, and another one as well. And he kept both of them as his wives. So Sakagawea was this pretty phenomenal uh, girl who was uh, uh, one in this game of chance, became a wife of this uh, gentleman, this French trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau. And they lived with the Hadatsa people nearby Fort Van Dam. Lewis and Clark came along. They needed a guide. Toussaint Charbonneau said, I'll come along and be your guide. What he didn't say, or maybe he did, but not to the greater extent, is what value his 13-year-old bride would be to the party. Because she was able to communicate with many of the Plains Indians. Now, this is pretty, pretty bizarre. She would communicate with them, and then she would use sign language to talk with her French-speaking husband who would then talk to a gentleman on the expedition who spoke a wee little bit of French, who would then, in English, tell the captains what the original Indian had said. So it was like playing telephone, but like maybe 20 words are understood by everybody. Nonetheless, Sakagawea was incredibly valuable uh, to the party. There's not much record of Toussaint Charbonneau's second child wife. Uh, she gets kind of lost somewhere, but she didn't come along in the party. Sakagawea was pregnant at the time and ended up giving birth to their baby uh, during uh, the adventure, which all of you with children know must have fucking sucked. Imagine being on a backpacking trip for years with a fucking baby. My God. <laughs> See if I missed anything. In addition to this was Clark's slave. Yes, he brought along his slave named York. And here's a picture of York. This is a Charlie Russell picture, so of course it is uh, very romanticized. This is a picture of uh, York with the Hadassah people uh, during that winter at Fort Mandan. And apparently the natives had not seen uh, very many uh, African descent folks at that time. They were quite fascinated by him. And according to the journals, the, uh, the gentlemen that would play instruments in the party would play music and York would dance for everybody. And uh, the Native American folks uh, very much appreciated seeing him dance. Uh, many of them, particularly the gentlemen, enjoyed uh, sharing their wives with York as they felt that there would be some power bestowed onto the child that might result from, uh, some, from such a coupling, we might say. Uh, so uh, York was a very popular man, but also, like Sakagawea, a slave on this journey. Darcy. Is there a nipple twisting going on in that picture? You know, I think what they're doing, I, I had read that they thought there was charcoal on his skin. Mm. So they may be attempting to wipe Twist some of the charcoal off. Charcoal. Twist his nipple, which I fucking dig it, <laughs> frankly. Um, I, I enjoy it tremendously. Um, I, <laughs> I'm going to stop right there. Um, yeah, yeah, you're 
York's a fascinating story. You know, I'm kind of jumping to the end now, but at the end of the trip, uh, he wanted his freedom. He said, you know what? I, I've traveled like 7,000 miles with you, Clark. Please give me my freedom. And Clark refused to do so. And uh, he kept him under bondage uh, for many more years. Uh, and York became very sad and sulky. And Clark uh, beat him. He lashed him for being so sad and sullen and uh, kind of lamented the fact that he'd been too easy on him throughout their career together. So it's a, it, it's a really fascinating uh, sub-story to this larger tale of Oregon's first Christmas, uh, these slave-holding men bringing, uh, bringing their uh, servants, their manservants, in York's case, their slaves, on this trip with them. So the party continued westward, westward, always westward, until they reached the mouth of the Columbia on November 7th, 1805, in which William Clark wrote in his journal, Ocean in view, <laughs> oh, the joy. Uh, Andy, do you want to, do you want to read that one? <laughs> I don't know if you gave me that one. Uh, I didn't give you that one. It's on a fucking nickel. It's on a nickel. Ocean in view. Oh, the joy. See, Andy does it so much better than I do it. Um, so, so I'm glad that he did. It's awesome. I'm like, I'm like your epic man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you could be drunk in Santa with the lady sitting on your lap, you know. You can turn that down. So something pretty interesting happened. Uh, they came to the mouth of the Columbia River, and uh, on November 24th, the captains had just been inundated with rain for weeks, and they were pretty depressed that they were here. They had thought that maybe they might find a trading vessel that would take them back east with all of their journals, all of the scientific specimens that they had with them, but alas, there was no vessel. They were getting along pretty well with the natives, uh, but things were uh, pretty pretty bad as they were living in this uh, basically a sandy bar near the mouth of the Columbia on the Washington side. And so the captains, Clark and Lewis, decided to have a vote among the party, which is very odd on a couple of levels. One, it's a military expedition, and the captains are asking the privates and the sergeants to vote on whether they should establish a fort in Washington, present-day Washington, or in Oregon on the south side. Second of all, they allowed York and Sacagawea a vote in this election as well, and tallied these slaves' votes the same as they had for the white men, which strikes me as particularly poignant in this tale. Ultimately, it was decided that the party would winter over at Fort Clatsop, where indeed they did experience the uh, Oregon's first Christmas. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a quick little break for about 10 minutes or so, allow you guys to get another drink, another cocktail, and then we're going to come back and actually get into the nitty-gritty of Oregon's first Christmas at Fort Clatsop. So go ahead and get something to drink, make sure to tip Carrie well, and we'll be back with you in a few. Syphilis. 
We, we don't really have any thematic music. We could say, Yeah, we got we got we, we, we got to talk about the Zula Flood. Oh, awesome! Yeah, next Tuesday, down here at the Jack London by Rick Thompson. No, 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 twelve twenty-seven. Hey, watch it, watch it. This isn't your holiday. Oh, actually, it is. Shit. <laughs> It is the first night of Hanukkah. Huh? Yeah. The Great Ice Age, Lake Missoula Flood left scars literally from Montana to the Pacific Ocean. Join us as artist, photographer, and writer Rick Thompson presents his research uncovering the effects of the Lake Missoula Flood in the Pacific Northwest. I guarantee you have rocks in your backyard. Unless you live in a condo in the Pearl. Uh, from the Missoula Flood. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Although it's not as interesting as when I used to teach it on the beach on the Oregon Coast. So, I mean, you can come see it. Or you can pay to take me to the Oregon Coast. Should we, should we do a much bigger than yours right now? Do you, do you want to do No, no, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, we can do that. No, 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 it's okay. We've been friends for a while. We can. No, no, no. I don't, I don't need to see that thing again. See it again. So I'm going to set the scene, ladies and gentlemen. December 25th, 1805, and it's raining. It's raining a lot. That's my favorite part of the last podcast. December 25th, 1805, William Clark wrote, At daylight this morning, we were awoke by the discharge of the fire of arms of all of our party and the salute, shouts, and a song which the whole party joined in under our windows, after which they retired to their rooms, were cheerful all of the morning. After breakfast, we divided our tobacco, which amounted to 12 carrots, one half of which we gave to the men of the party who used tobacco, and to those who do not use it, we make a present of a handkerchief. All the party snugly fixed in their huts. I received a present of Captain Lewis, of a fleece hosiery, shirt drawers and socks, a private moccasins, a white house, a small Indian basket of Gutheridge, two dozen white weasel tails of the Indian woman, and some black root of the Indians before their departure. The day proved showery, wet, and disagreeable. We would have spent the day of the nativity of Christ in feasting, had we anything either to raise our spirits or even gratify our appetites, our dinner consisted of poor elk, so much spoiled that we ate it through mere necessity, some spoiled pounded fish, and a few roots. Boy, he's a shitty speller. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Lindbergh, Chandler Williams Clark. Admiral job. Admirable job. So, uh, yeah, Fort Classic right here. The gentlemen were up north, and they held their uh, their historic vote, and they decided to come down to Fort Classic mainly due to the abundance of elk. And it was a goddamn good thing, because that's all they ate for the next four months. Uh, this is a drawing of um, uh, the reconstruction of the fort which I believe was done in the 1950s. Have folks been out to Fort Clatsop? Out now, Florida! Yeah. Dr. Hills, we have. 
Okay, entirely too few of you are clapping. I think the next time you're out on the coast, you should absolutely make a visit. It's a fascinating place. We're going to see a couple of photos of it. They don't know exactly where it was, uh, but they have a darn good idea, and they built a reconstruction of it in the 1950s. That, uh, that structure burnt down a few years ago. Uh, from a fire that was left in the, one of the stoves overnight. Whoops, we don't want to restart now. Uh, so it was rebuilt just a few years ago, and they did a really fantastic job. We're going to take a look at a couple of the photos. So, again, you know, the men are uh, up in Washington, and then they came down to Oregon, and they started cutting these logs, and they built this fort. And they built the damn thing in, like, three weeks. It's pretty phenomenal uh, to think that Christmas Day they were putting the finishing touches onto their structure at Fort Plata. Here's a plan. This is, I believe it's Clark's original drawing of how big it was. This is kind of transposed here. So top is bottom, bottom is top kind of thing. But you can see that the Charbonneaux had their own room because that fucking baby screaming all night is my guess. Uh, or maybe it's the, 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 the really loud sex with your 13-year-old child wife. I don't know which. Uh, either way, it's kind of fucking just, well, come on, let's get real, dude. Wasn't she 14 by then? She was probably 14 by then, absolutely. <laughs> Which makes it so much better. It's like, okay, dude. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, so I'm going to just stop. Um, so, yeah, I have the captain's head at the orderly room, the meat room which is where they smoked the elk, which apparently they did not do very well, as it was rotting the entire time that they were at Fort Clatsa. And then the three different squads had their own cabins as well. And here's another picture today. So for Christmas morning, uh, the captain says, uh, Andy so eloquently uh, conveyed Captain Clark's eloquent verse, uh, were awakened by a volley of shot from the men, not from the cannon, because those fucking things were so heavy for them to carry across, they decided to leave them, I believe, at Great Falls, but with their small arms and their muskets. And uh, they broke into a song, probably not as cheery as the Portland Gay Men's Choir, but nonetheless, I think still kind of the same feeling of 33 men and uh, uh, a 13-year-old girl, excuse me, 14-year-old girl, uh, singing along. And there were some gifts exchanged, as uh, we had said. The men received some tobacco or a handkerchief. The interesting thing, um, I had a chance to go out to Fort Platts up in researching the podcast and talk to the ranger out there. He's named Tom Wilson, fascinating fellow. He's a reenactor. He spends lots of winter in winters in buckskins. Wet, wet buckskins. Uh, he's, he's a nice guy. Uh, we went out here. He just had a knee replacement. I met him at the visitor center, and he's fucking walking like this. And he says, well, should we go down to the fort, and you can record me there? And I'm like, oh, geez, I can't fucking do this. Uh, so we sat down at the visitor center uh, and, and chatted there. Uh, Andy, the, the uh, sadist that he is, uh, almost insisted that we record in the fort. Uh, even more so after I told him about this gentleman's surgery. So. <laughs> Maybe he said the fort, if it's rainy, you yeah, got to record it there. Yeah, he's going to make it go down But, you know, uh, uh, Tom Wilson brought up some interesting points. You know, he said, Sacagawea gave William Clark two dozen white weasel tails. These are from Ermin, which is a very small rodent, and they are only white for a few months out of the year. Furthermore, 
they're not native to this area. They're in the mountains. So she had been collecting these little weasel tails for quite some time, holding them due to the significance and the value, and then giving them to William Clark on this Christmas. It's truly fascinating, and as he said, you know, he wished that she had a journal that we'd be able to read, because of course she couldn't write, so she didn't. Uh, just to get her perspective on this amazing voyage that took place. So, Fort Clapton was their home until the middle of March. They would have pretty much daily trading sessions with the Chinookan peoples, the Chinook Indians, and the Clatsops that lived in the area. And at this point in the journey, the expedition was very poor. They were broke as shit. They had traded most of their stuff across the way. In fact, they really didn't have anything left to trade, such as the knives, the files, the axe heads, or the glass beads. And they were starving. They were at the point where all there was for them to eat was the spoiled elk that they would shoot. They shot over a hundred of the beasts during the three months that they were there. 22 deer. And uh, they ate a couple of beavers and a few other things. But for the most part, it was elk. And they were starving. Uh, the natives attempted to help them with salmon, which they didn't find too agreeable. They preferred the dog uh, meat that they were able to obtain now and again. But towards the end of their stay, they were almost completely broke and couldn't even purchase dog meat from the natives anymore. So Oregon's first Christmas was indeed celebrated in a bakerly manner with some spoiled elk, some spoiled pounded fish, and a few roots was all that they were left uh, was all that they were left to eat. The class of Indians in the area uh, practiced head flattening. So you can see from these pictures, this is a picture of a baby up there. But they would hold them uh, in that uh, apparatus for I believe 18 months until they had that nice flattened head. That was a sign that you were not a slave. The Chinooks did the same. And here's a painting by Tom Kay. I believe this is like 1830s. And this is showing one of the little babies with that apparatus. And then his mother, or its mother, uh, and what her head looked like. They found this is quite attractive, which is very fascinating. Now. These people lived on the coast and were largely naked from the waist down. The reason why was not uh, Dan, Dirty Dan, uh, to show their massive dongs, but it was because they were in and out of canoes all the time. So to have clothes, would have those clothes get wet. It was much easier if they were naked. They had these phenomenal conical cedar hats that they wore that Lewis and Clark were so fascinated by and so impressed at how they kept the water off that they ordered an entire uh, an entire haberdasher's volume of hats to be made for the gentlemen of the expedition shed the rain off. There's a few interesting points that we should discuss about the Chinookans, the Chinookan people there. One of them is their canoes. Um, they're still very active canoeists to this day, uh, the Chinookan people. And this is a modern canoe uh, that was built, I'm not exactly sure how long ago it was built, but it's still uh, being used. And they still um, do pilot these canoes all the way to Vancouver Island uh, from the mouth of the Columbia, through the ocean, mind you, through the ocean. 
uh, and they get together with other native folks along the way, um, some more of the Salish folks as they head up north. And it's a big kind of meeting, and everybody gets together, and uh, they stop along the way, and the different tribes or nations will exchange pleasantries and continue on. Um, and the, the captains were quite fascinated with their canoeing skills. Um, and on Christmas Day uh, was no exception from that as well, as they did have visitors coming along. Um, later on, the captains decided they needed a canoe, and we'll talk about that at the end of the talk. But in the meantime, I thought maybe we might go into White House. Uh, one of the other gentlemen, if you want to just read from right there, Andy's going to read uh, in his White House character that he developed for the podcast, um, the journal entry from one of the few privates who could actually write. So this is Joseph Whitehouse's uh, journal entry, uh, or a portion of it, from December 25th, 1805. We had a hard rain and a cloudy weather as usual. We all moved into our new garrison to Fort, which our officers named after a nation of Indians who resided near us called Clatsop Nation. Fort Clatsop. found our huts comfortable, accepting smoking we saluted our officers by each of our party firing off his guns at daybreak in honor of the day, Christmas. Our officers in return presented each of the party that used tobacco, a part of what tobacco we had remaining. Those who did not make use of it, they gave a handkerchief or some other article. Remembrance of Christmas. We had no armed spirits of any kind among us, but are mostly in good health, a blessing which we esteem more than all the luxuries his life can afford. And the party are all thankful to the Supreme Being for his goodness towards us, hoping he will preserve us in the same and enable us to return to the United States again in safety. We have at present nothing to eat but lean elk, that without salt. The whole of our party are content with despair. Thank you, Private Whitehouse. I, I love the idea that you talking about going, you know, being in Oregon and talking about going back to the United States. The whole People's Republic of Portland thing. You fucking come. U.S. out of Oregon. Yeah, it's, um, White House talks about the ardent spirits. They were out of ardent spirits. Typically on a holiday such as that, they would uh, have a toast, of course, have a good drink, get drunk. Furthermore, in the army at that point, there was a, a ration of rum that was distributed to the men every day. Typically four ounces of rum would be distributed to the army as they were uh, participating in their martial activities. This had run out by July 4th of the previous year. <laughs> this had been gone for quite some time. And that's a big deal. May, may, I, may I read from what uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia? I, I think you absolutely should read About Frederick the Great. This is, this is Frederick the Great of Prussia, mind you. If you contemplate this sudden enterprise against the enemy, the commissary must skip together all of the beer and brandy that can be found on the road, so that the army does not lack either, at least during the first days. As soon as the army enters enemy territory, all of the brewers and the 
distillate, especially those of brandy, must be seized so that the soldiers do not lack a drink, which he cannot do without. <laughs> so say Frederick the Great of Prussia. It sounds like Arnold appeared in the very end. Yes, but nonetheless, uh, it, it points out that especially at the time, alcohol was 100% absolutely vital to any martial strategy, any martial engagement, any uh, cantonment that may happen at any point in the United States and even in the famous Prussians' military strategist's art of war. Nonetheless, these gentlemen were without elk. <laughs> It's what's for dinner. <laughs> and breakfast. Oh, and lunch too. These men made an, ate an astounding amount of elk. And the sad thing is that that's all that there was. They ate what they termed poor elk, meaning it was almost absent of fat. These men sought two things in their diet fat and salt. Fucking booze. Fucking booze, too. Fucking booze. <laughs> and they couldn't come up with it. Salty, fatty booze. Salty, fatty booze. Now, the Chinook Indians were fat. They were a fat people. And let me tell you why. Because they had salmon. The salmon runs at that time are nothing that we can comprehend in this era of dams. We cannot comprehend the amount of fish that were in that river. They did not have to toil very much at all to subsist. Furthermore, they were at an integral point of Native Americans in the interior and Western merchants meeting together at the mouth of the Columbia to get those furs. These were rich, rich motherfuckers. They were trading the fish, that's right. They were trading the fish at the Dalles when they would have an annual rendezvous and they would trade it with the inland peoples. They would bring all the furs and everything else they had acquired to their homes at the coast where they would trade with the white Europeans who are taking those furs to Asia. The Chinese specifically loved them. So there was this vast global economic empire and the Chinookan people were at the apex of it. These people did not have to work much. These people got fucking fast. They would sit around and eat salmon. And they, they had a lot of muskets, a lot of old, rusty muskets they obtained from the western folks. Uh, but they weren't very good at them, uh, shooting them. And they mainly lived off of the salmon and a lot of small mammals. They had very small bows that they would shoot other, uh, other mammals with. But they couldn't hit the elk. So Fort Clatsop, there was a ton of elk that Lewis and Clark stumbled upon. And in fact, they often found little wooden points of the arrows in the elk when they were butchering them up, where the Chinookans had attempted to shoot them, but the arrow had broken off. But by the time they left, they had pretty much killed all of the elk in the area. Local and sustainable, yes, but not until the next season. So these guys, 100%, were completely, completely dependent on the Klaxa and the Chinookan peoples that were there to help them out. And of course, they tried to get a little bit of scratch off of Clark and Lewis, 
but there was not much scratch to be had at that point. Holy shit. Has anybody heard this story? Yes. You heard this story? All right. <laughs> March 1806. No trading vessel shows up. I can imagine the conversations between the captains. We have to fucking walk back. <laughs> Let's wait till tomorrow. <laughs> One more day. One more day. That's right. We gotta fucking walk. No, wait till tomorrow. They had a letter from the Secretary of State of the United States of America guaranteeing any merchant full payment if they would bring these men back. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited. But the snow's gonna come to the Rockies eventually, so you gotta fucking go. And you sure as fuck don't wanna win her over in North Dakota again, do you? They couldn't wait forever. They had lost one of their canoes in one of the estuaries by Fort Plateau. So they attempted to trade with some of the classic folks to get a canoe. What do you want to trade for? Well, they wanted a lot more stuff than Lewis and Clark had. So they decided at one point to steal a canoe. So they went to the local village under the cover of darkness and they stole one of the classic canoes. And in fact, they knew that they stole it because Chief Cobbaway came the next day to say goodbye and they fucking hit it. They covered they covered it up with some brush. Yes, Darcy. Doug, was this the first significant theft from Absolutely. the Redskins? Absolutely. There, and she's a, she's a savage, so she's allowed to say that shit. It's like these Jews joking about each other. It's fine. I can joke about Jews too, because I fucking married when I got two little Jew babies in Little Jews. Love you. I eat all the bacon. They get none. So anyway, uh, <laughs> where was I, Darcy? Fuck. All right, I was talking about this canoe. Yes, yes. And there are many, there are many historians on this Clark and Lewis tip who argue that this is the largest taint of this explanation. Oh shit. Why? I didn't mean to say that. that was good though. I like that. I like that. This is the largest smudge. Largest farce. This is the largest smudge on the historical record that they stooped to such a level that everything else before this point was pretty damn exemplary on their interaction. Remember, small d diplomatic mission talking about the great father, and they stole this fucking canoe. Okay? They stole it. They knew they stole it. They made some bullshit response of, oh, well, you know, we left Cobb away with an elk skin, and, and that was all good to go. An elk skin. Like, he gives a fuck about an elk skin as you're taking this canoe. This is a picture. Uh, it was taken, I believe, in 2010. This is a canoe that uh, Clark's descendants had commissioned and was given back to the Chinook Indians. 205 years ago. Too little, too late. Maybe too little, too late. Reparations, right? That's reparations, motherfucker! <laughs> so, so uh, the, the, the commissioning at this time was about $50,000. It's, it's a pretty it's a pretty fascinating tale. Uh, if you want to look into it, um, it's, it's, it's a really good one. I love it. I believe that's up at uh, Hilwaco, is where this picture was taken. So, uh, yeah, March 23rd, 1806, and the expedition heads back 
to the United States. Uh, York is not free. Um, Sacagawea goes off into history. Some say she died three years later. Uh, others say that she lived to be 98 years old. There's what two different stories. I heard there was a little, little deal between Clark and, uh, Clark and I don't know much about the deal between the two of them. Uh, it would explain the white weasel tails, I guess. I do know that uh, that they had Sacagawea sleep. Well, all of the Charbonneaus would sleep with the captains at night because they were concerned about uh, this 14-year-old girl around these rugged men uh, for the entire expedition. So I know that she did sleep with uh, with the captains and her husband at night. So if, if there was some hanky-panky going on... Yeah, whoa, whoa, wow, maybe, maybe, who knows? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, this, uh, this pretty much wraps up our um, Oregon's first Christmas. Um, I want to give you a quick little plug tomorrow. Um, of course, if you're downtown, you, you have to come to the Rialto of the Jack London. But, that's right, you have to. But, if you happen to find yourself... Uh, up on Alberta, I'm going to be presenting at the Shed Culture Portland Timbers event tomorrow night. Uh, just like uh, our buddy Digger, I'm going to be giving uh, a history on kick-ass axes of Oregon history. We are going to look at the seven most historical axes of Oregon history. And it's going to be... Not axes of evil, I'm talking about motherfucking axes. So uh, we're going to be doing that, and there's going to be a whole Portland Timbers thing going on at the Timbers Army event. So if you're not down this far, I'd recommend that you join us for that. And then, of course, January 17th is going to be our next production here at the Jack London. We are going to uh, display our dioramas. Uh, I believe we're going to have a little bit of an Oregon's birthday prequel. Uh, as Oregon's birthday is February 14th, Valentine's Day. We're going to call it the Oregasm. But what, what's our podcast coming up in the new year? Okay, podcast in the new year. Let's see, we're going to do the DB Cooper Live. We're going to do the DB Cooper Live show on um, fucking. I don't need dates, I just need to know. Well, I got some dates, you know. We're going to do D.B. Cooper Live on on January 15th, D.B. Cooper Live. On February 2nd, we're going to do Kick-Ass Oregon History Dioramas Rule. We're going to talk about dioramas. Uh, February 14th is going to be the Oregon Podcast, which... um, Actually, we might get a couple of you tonight. Terry, I want to get you, I want to record you for the podcast saying, Oh God, Oregon, you're so big. Oh, Oregon, deeper, deeper, Oregon, deeper, Oregon. Um, okay. Um, March 1st is the anniversary special, which, have you guys seen, uh, have you seen the mini Big Lebowski where it's all the fuck words like put together on YouTube from the Big Lebowski? Oh, you haven't seen that? Well, you gotta see that, but we're gonna do that for our podcast. There's a lot of them. We're gonna string together all You didn't get that email? I sent that to you. want just to ignore it. We're gonna string together. Oh, and then March 15th, we're going to do a, um, I think I'm gonna do deaths on Trinet. Yeah, and we're going to do a big Portland 
We're going to do a big Portland transportation show down here uh, the third Tuesday in March. I'm going to talk about all the people that have been killed by buses or on the Maxes. Mad Max, Portland's death trolley. I like that. Max Homicide. And uh, we're going to have uh, Dave Knows PDX is going to be down here. Uh, Dr. Jeff, who's another TriMet dude, dude from uh, TriMet Diaries folks, is going to be down here. So we're going to have like, and we're going to have a little open mic thing where you can talk about um, Portland transit horror stories. But you can't talk about the time the dude pissed himself on the bus because he didn't talk about that he was killed. Yeah, yeah. He saw a dude get shot at it on the bus. Like this one chick I was. I was going to do a special photo essay. <laughs> this uh, this one chick I was uh, friends with at one point. She was on a bus that got maced. That was a good one. Everybody started puking. Yeah. But we saw that bus run over that guy's foot. Did we? In high school. Was I on that? He, he ran out in front of the bus. Got his foot run over. I was like, do that story. I must have been hot. No, you weren't. I wasn't. You got to remind me. We were going to strike from school. I'm just so old. You were <laughs> okay, okay. So, uh, so yeah, that's it. That's You're around the Alberta Rose Theater, come on down and check it out. Thank you everybody for coming on down to the Jack Lander. I want to, uh, I want to thank uh, Mr. Andrew David Lindbergh. Such a Jewy name, and he's just not. Yeah. I want to thank uh, Mr. Andrew David Lindbergh for joining us today. with the most deaths, Terry, for allowing us to come down here every month. Uh, she does more, I think, than anybody else in this town to support good Oregon history. There's a lot of people supporting yeah. shitty Oregon history. But she's doing it. She's keeping it real, man. And uh, we want to thank her tremendously. Let's give Terry a big hand. Bartenders, make sure to click on orhistory.com as this podcast will be live. Absolutely. Uh, soon. I just want to, uh, just one more question for you. What does it mean that the menorah has gone out? <laughs> it's just, just, just pretend that it happened. It's Christmas. <laughs> it means it's Christmas. And they're used to packing up their bags and moving, right? I mean, it's the whole book of Exodus. That's all it is. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for coming down tonight.